Welcome everyone. Thanks for being here on the 4th of July. Today we are very blessed to have David Cushing with us. So let me introduce to you guys who David is and then we can dive straight into the topic. So since 2018, David has served as a co-founder, senior advisor and investor in digital asset startups as well as traditional trading and investment related startups. His portfolio includes Telos Trading, Bioda, a digital boutique merchant bank and economic design, where you guys are right now. His traditional finance portfolio includes Clearpool Trading and Pine Groove Capital Management. Previously, David spent 12 years in Wellington Management Company, where he was a partner for eight years and held a variety of roles, including the Director of Global Trading and responsibility for over 10 trillion of annual revenue turnover. So yeah, we're blessed to have David with us today and we're going to talk a little bit about Bitcoin. So anything else you want to introduce about yourself first before we start? How do you get into Bitcoin? It's funny. I mean, I was, to be honest, early on skeptical, I guess. I hadn't really looked too much at it. I didn't really get it. And um, through a series of what may be coincidences or may have been serendipitous, I started to meet people who were in the space and started to understand a little bit more about how it worked and, you know, read the original Bitcoin white paper and started to basically get more and more drawn in. And the more I learned about it, the more I felt like it was a very exciting and very promising area and one that was going to end up playing a very pivotal role in the future development of the economy and really of the energy infrastructure as well. And so I'm as excited today as I've ever been. And I think there's some very interesting connections to be drawn. I think a lot of people look at Bitcoin as a potentially as a store of value, potentially as a speculative vehicle. But I think the real story or one of the underpinning story is the connection between Bitcoin, energy and the economy. And I'd love to talk more about that, but I'll stop for a second and just see if that all makes sense. Yes, and that's exactly what we want to talk about today. There's a lot of debates going on about how Bitcoin is a security, Bitcoin is a currency, Bitcoin is a store of value. But one of these topics that we've been discussing between us is how Bitcoin is something about energy and how the economy is basically all about energy. As much as we are talking about Bitcoin being part of capitalism, it's all about money, the underlying thing of money is really energy. In this chat, we toyed this idea a little bit in the past with Dr. Viroshan, where we talked about money as a social network and we talked about how the economy functions in a very different way, that it's not just money being the underpinning variable, but energy being a very huge part of this. So yeah, let's dive deep into it. Let's dive straight into it. So economy is energy. What does that mean? So if you look at a chart, if you overlay charts of the growth of GDP historically and the availability of energy historically, you see that these things are pretty much one to one. And the economy grew very, very slowly. I'm talking now like over millennia, grew very slowly for a long period of time because we were fundamentally limited. We figured out how to harness solar, but really only in the form of crops. We could harness wind, but really only for transportation and for manufacturing and similar for, for hydro. And it wasn't until this essentially game-changing technology, really what it was, fossil fuel, came onto the scene and became cheaply, abundantly available and storable and transportable. It had so many qualities that made it almost infinite variety of applications and infinite scope of applications that you see the GDP chart really start to take off. And so seeing that data for the first time, really, it really hit me hard how the economy really is energy. And, you know, the other angle that I came at it from, I'm very interested in renewable energy, have been for a long time. 
And I tried to do some research essentially to talk to other people about, this was back in the early 2000s, why should people be interested in renewable energy? What does it mean? And again, I sort of began to see the equivalence. I mean, you can look at the data, you know, the calculations are pretty simple to make. X joules of energy equals Y dollars of GDP. I was really looking at it in that context because what I actually the kind of the fun fact that I figured out back then is that one US dollar was basically one pound of CO2 in the atmosphere. So that was a pretty astonishing equivalence for me to stumble across. But again, it further cemented this idea about the economy and the energy being really one and the same. So let me just backtrack a little bit and explain if that makes sense. The world economy is really dependent on the amount of energy produced. This could be in, for example, in agriculture. Before that, the, the world's economy is just really, really sad because everyone lived in nomadic groups. There wasn't really, money wasn't really a thing. But then we started the agricultural revolution and we have agrarian cultures where people are growing food. And food is really just stored energy. Energy is what we use to do work. And food is a stored energy and there we can trade this stored energy and GDP grew. And after that came the industrial revolution where we could use hydropower, we can use solar power, renewable energy, fossil fuel to create different types of work. We can trade this different kind of work. We can trade energy, which is a proxy for work done. So in that sense, money or the world's economy is very tightly linked to what energy is, how energy is stored, how energy can be traded. And energy in this sense is CO2. Yeah, I mean, certainly for the fossil fuel well, I would say CO2 is more a byproduct of using a certain, you know, obviously using the fossil form of energy. But I think that if you tie back what that unit of output of energy output translates it to in terms of economic growth or GDP, you get the CO2 emission as sort of a byproduct. And obviously today we're trying to really ratchet down. You know, we've seen what that byproduct is doing to the world and we're obviously working very hard to ratchet that down. But you raised a, an interesting point, which is that in a sense, and again, I think this really kind of buttresses the point of my excitement about Bitcoin, but money really kind of evolved as really as a form of energy storage long before, obviously, you know, millennia before Bitcoin came on the scene. But, you know, if somebody stores energy in the form of some crops in the field, they take the crops to the market, they deliver that energy to somebody else, someone else gives them money, right, for that crop. So... In effect, the money that that person, that farmer is now holding in their hands is essentially a form of the storage of that, of, you know, it's an exchange of the stored energy for that money. And, you know, again, these things, I think, inevitably co-evolved and you almost can't have one without the other, or you can, but you can only use the energy you generate for yourself. But it's obviously way more useful to be able to swap it or barter it or trade it or sell it to other people and then be able to get something in return that, that you can then re-exchange for energy down the road. So energy is just really a store of something, something that can, yeah, well, produce, yeah. well, can produce value right. add. Right. I'd say money is a store of energy. Is that, that's how I would say it. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, so we're inching towards where Bitcoin is a store of energy instead of money is a store of energy. And this is the part where it gets tricky. Let's say crops being a store of energy because it's a store of future energy because it can allow for future consumption and you can trade that. That makes sense. Crop as a good to trade, hence butter trade in the past. That makes sense. And if we talk about store of energy, we're looking at, say, batteries because you can store this energy to be used for other purposes. It could be to power a car, it could be turn the TV on, it could be charge a phone. But with Bitcoin, if Bitcoin is a store of energy, how do we use that? 
Yes. So I think the simplest example would be, let's fast forward to the present. This will probably end up taking us in some different directions, but we can, <laughs> we can hold that off for a bit if we want and continue to talk more about this. Okay, so today we are transitioning our economy to being essentially all electric. And we are obviously having a corresponding need to generate vastly greater amounts of electricity, which is all good. I mean, renewable energy, electricity generated from renewable sources like wind and solar is hands down today the cheapest cost of production. But of course, for electric grid to function, it has to be balanced meaning supply and demand have to be roughly equal at all times. But moreover, you have sources of available generation. So meaning like take, for example, in the US, the plains in the middle of the country and Texas to a large extent are the most abundant wind resources in the US. I mean, you could build windmills in Nebraska that generate lots of electricity, but there's no grid really to connect it to. There isn't enough economic activity in that part of the country, and there's not enough infrastructure in that part of the country to make that investment pay off. However, what you could do is essentially attach mining rigs, you know, build that infrastructure, mine Bitcoin in that part of the country. That obviously creates money, real money for the miner. And then that money can then turn around and be used to purchase energy in other places and maybe even in other forms, but most likely in the form of electricity somewhere else. So that's the sense in which I think you are essentially storing energy when you mine Bitcoin. Yeah, so let me summarize to see if it makes sense. So there's abundance of ways to generate energy in the world, depending on where you go. The only problem is that as much as you can create energy through solar, through wind, go to the desert or go to a big area where you have wind coming in. That's not a problem. The only problem is the demand. When there is demand for the energy, then you can build the right infrastructures in place to meet the demand. With places that you can relatively easy, where it's relatively easier to get energy, it's usually not really inhabited by people. Hence, there isn't an incentive to create that infrastructure to meet the demand of, let's say, cities or states nearby to fulfill that demand. And what Bitcoin can do is to allow this thing to function. So we're talking about the infrastructure of Bitcoin, how Bitcoin runs. So if we have these different windmills and using the abundance of energy generators to have mining rigs stored over there, then you can power the whole Bitcoin network without creating too much waste. Would that be a yes. summary? Yeah, I think that's actually an additional point. Um, the question about, I mean, we can go down that, we can explore that whole topic of whether Bitcoin energy usage is, you know, is Bitcoin fuel climate change? Does it uh, create competition for energy that would otherwise be used, quote unquote, productively? And I think it's pretty easy to dismiss that argument based on how much energy is wasted currently, based on how many places in which energy can be generated that would otherwise be uneconomic. And Lisa, you probably recall, we chatted about a podcast where a gentleman named Hass McCook was the guest, and he talks very eloquently about this. And maybe, I don't know if you do notes for these calls, but maybe we can put a link to that in there, because that does a way more eloquent job of making the case than I can do. But let's take that wind farm in Nebraska example one step further. So let's suppose, again, a miner sets this whole thing up. They're generating electricity at one cent a kilowatt hour. They're going to be profitable mining in almost any scenario. But now let's suppose there is a business that's looking to, let's say it's an electricity or energy intensive business, looking for a place to site its operations. And historically, Nebraska would have been completely off the table because it just didn't have the energy infrastructure. It would not be attractive as a potential site. 
Well, now you have the infrastructure there. So at the margin, instead of the cost of them relocating there to be to build the entire wind farm, maybe the marginal expansion would be only a fraction of the cost. And now it works for them to put their business there and to run it 100% renewably. So in that sense, Bitcoin really acts as a facilitator and its ability to expand the renewable network and then let the market forces fill in behind it. I think we're going to see countless examples of this unfolding, not to mention the fact that Bitcoin mining will be, it already is being incorporated into grid operations as a balancing source. So miners enter into contracts with utilities that say, we're willing to slow down our mining during peak load times. And this happens all the time, by the way. People get paid to take their demand offline. It's a very common practice in the utility industry. And so miners are no different in this sense, except they can be way more agile. You know, if you have an industrial customer who agrees to shed load during a heat wave, for example, it could be a 30-minute process. It could take hours. For a miner, a miner can basically just put a control mechanism at the head of their stack, of their mining stack, that the utility actually can control. And again, they don't care because they're getting paid to not mine, and they're getting paid to mine. So from the miner's perspective, they're indifferent. But what they've done is they've allowed the utility to take on way more renewables because they have this immense ability to help balance the grid. I think I've lost you a little bit on the part of utility and grid operations. What is this miner's utility we're talking about? And what is this grid operations? And how is Bitcoin coming together to balance the whole energy demand space? I'm glad you asked because I, <laughs> in another lifetime, I got very immersed in the electric grid and I probably skipped over a few steps there. So let me break it down a little bit. So essentially, for an electric grid to stay up, for it not to black out or brown out or for transformers to start exploding <laughs> on the line, um, you have to keep the supply and the demand in pretty close to perfect balance. And so and there are these... Energy supply and energy demand. So how do you create energy from yeah. wind and the demand by households using that energy? That's exactly right. The grid is basically like a matching market to match all the suppliers with the demand, the people who are demanding. Exactly right. And again, this is really more of a physical property of electricity. It's not an economic rule. It's not a regulatory rule. It's that electricity simply won't tolerate being imbalanced. And so again, all of the suppliers, whether they be wind farms or solar panels or coal plants or nuclear plants or hydro, whatever they are, the sum total of what they're putting out at any moment in time has to closely match every consumer's television, every factory's assembly machines, every office building's lighting demand. All of that has to add up to basically you know, what's on the left side of the equation has to pretty much equal what's on the right side of the equation. So when it comes to energy, every energy that is produced has to be consumed. Yes. Like, what about in, batteries? In, what about like energy storage? So charging batteries is going to be an increasingly common use of that supply. And really, again, as a form of storage for a later time. So again, you know, charging a battery, right? Like when I charge my electric vehicle, I'm charging essentially what amounts to a large battery, and I'm doing it from the supply that's being generated on the grid at that moment in time. So batteries are just a special case of an application or a use of the electricity that's flowing through the grid. So right now that there is a possibility to tap into the abundance creation of energy 
through solar, through wind, through hydro. What we are looking at right now is to increase the demand of energy usage and energy capture and energy storage so that we can use this energy in the future. Is that like the problem statement? Yeah, yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I think that's a good high level statement. And, you know, more particularly because solar and wind and hydro to some extent are less predictable. You know, if the sun goes behind a cloud, if the wind dies or picks up, you know, it makes this balancing act more challenging. So the grid operator has to work harder when their energy, their electricity supply is coming from renewables because they're less predictable. And so as a result, you want to have more batteries, more ways of storing excess in times of excess, and then you want to be able to discharge that storage in times of deficit, again, to keep this equation balanced. And again, Bitcoin mining, you have to really kind of open your mind to see it this way. But in this sense, Bitcoin can really be thought of as a battery, as a form of storage. And again, while there's excess supply being generated, Bitcoin miners can run their rigs at full steam and soak up all that excess. And then when there is a, a shortage, the sun goes down or the wind dies or whatever, they can then stop doing that. And that allows the loads that are you know less discretionary in nature, people running their homes or their offices or what have you, those can take priority. And so it's already starting. I mean, they've already become a very important, these are called balancing resources. They've already become important balancing resources on grids, particularly California and Texas, where there's so much renewables already. So we have dived quite a bit into the technical infrastructure and almost like the economics of energy usage and electricity coming from the grid, which is basically a marketplace to match energy creation and energy usage together. They always have to be equal. So one of yes. these things that we've been talking about is this thing called universal Bitcoin income. And universal basic income, the general UBI, is really the idea where everyone gets just some money, some amount of money to be used and spent in whatever way they want. It's just issued to them every month. But since we are talking about how money is a form of energy and we touched on the topic of, you know, for example, in Iran, every household has 12 hours of time to get electricity. They can do anything involved with this electricity. A very key important thing is during this 12 hours, you have to figure out a way to capture this energy, change it to electricity so that you can use this electricity or energy, whatever way you use to store energy for the next 12 hours of your day. Otherwise, you just have zero energy, zero electricity because everyone only has 12 hours of energy every single day. So since we talk about how Bitcoin is a store of energy, what does universal Bitcoin income look like and what does it mean? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I do think the sort of the rationed, the electricity rationing case is almost, you know, you can almost think about the household that's trying to figure out how to run its day is almost like a microcosm for this idea that the role that storage plays and batteries play more broadly in figuring out, you know, how to manage a limited energy supply in the most productive way. Having said that, if you buy this idea that money is energy effectively, then if you can store energy in a battery, and batteries take obviously many forms, including the kinds of electric batteries we think of, but also, you know, you can store it as chemical energy, you can store it as potential energy, you know, there are lots of different ways to store it. And you think about money as a store of economic output. And then if you think about the fact that energy is the economy, couldn't you just allocate people energy directly? as opposed to giving them a universal basic income that consists of a currency of some kind. 
which is just, I mean, and I'll, you know, not to stretch the abstraction too far, but a currency is just, any given currency is just one form of storage of value, right? So you could basically give people pretty much any form of store of value as their universal basic income. And you could even just remove or go one step further back in the process and say, we're not even going to give you income. We're just going to give you energy. We're going to give you an allocation of energy. You can use it for whatever you want. You know, if you have a machine shop, you know, that you need to power, you can use it for that. If you want to mine Bitcoin or you want to allocate that energy to someone who will mine Bitcoin on your behalf, you can do that. You know, the idea is to be thought provoking necessarily that at least in today's, the way this economy is structured today, it's intended to be more thought provoking than practical. But again, it really drives home this point that energy is money. And if you want to maximize the value of a universal basic income, then make it in a form that has more optionality, has more different ways to be applied or used than just one single, you know, call it say fiat currency or, or what have you. And again, it's really more intended to be thought provoking. I mean, you know, if you gave everybody a battery and said, we're going to charge your battery X amount every day for free, have fun. I mean, I think most people would have trouble doing anything with that today. But again, I really feel like this idea of the equivalence between energy and the economy is going to gain more and more traction as people look around and see in their daily lives how these things are linked in all these different ways. And so that idea becomes less of a thought experiment and maybe more something practical in the future. So to summarize, when we talk about UBI, it's not so much about giving money to people because money is just a tool. What is underwriting this tool? Where's this tool's value coming from? It's really through energy. Energy is the output to do work. And work can be anything you deem work is to you. What is work to me might be different for you, but the resource required to do work is energy. So instead of allocating the scarce item called money or fiat currency, what we're allocating is the scarce item called energy then you're free to do anything you want with it. You want to mine Bitcoin, go for it. You want to use it to exchange for USD or RMB or JPY, go for it. Because that tool, the asset, the scarce resource is energy. If we link it back to Bitcoin again, if we use energy, if we use this scarce energy that's given to every single person to be mining Bitcoin, the value of doing that is that there is a utility for Bitcoin. There is a use case for Bitcoin. But other than trading, other than speculating, what else would be the use case for Bitcoin? Why would anyone want to take this precious resource that they have called energy and spend it only just to mine Bitcoin? Good question. I think, let me give you one sort of concrete example of just the energy money equivalence idea and as it relates to universal basic income. But then I think we can also perhaps pivot this conversation in the direction of what are the social benefits of having Bitcoin, yes, but, but also stable coins and other forms of cryptocurrency around. But let me give you a simple example of practically speaking how this might play out. So when, as I mentioned before, there are times when the renewable grid is generating more electricity than can be used. It's already happening a lot, but it's also happening more and more and more. So you have that fact on the one hand. And what happens is there's a concept called grounding, where basically all of the electricity that's being generated that's excess has to just be basically jammed back into the ground and goes unused. Now, you think about the political rhetoric around universal basic income. It's like, oh, we don't have the money to pay for that. The economy couldn't possibly afford to support that, et cetera, et cetera. As a modest beginning, what if you were to simply take all of that grounded electricity that's literally no value to anyone, it's being thrown away today, 
and use it to mine Bitcoin and then distribute that Bitcoin to people, you know, based on some allocation of need or however you want to allocate it, wouldn't everybody win from that scenario? How does it link to stablecoins? Well, it's just the volatility of Bitcoin that I think would be untenable for folks who are relying on this universal Bitcoin income, as we've labeled it. Maybe someday the economy will reprice into cryptocurrencies natively. Obviously, you know, what happened in El Salvador recently is a very interesting study or case that I think people are going to be looking at or following closely. And for those who didn't catch this, Bitcoin is now legal tender in El Salvador, in addition to the USD. And again, like all these latter points we've been discussing, Lisa, are kind of drawing us in this direction of the social benefits of Bitcoin, which I'd love to turn to for the time we have left. So again, to answer your question, stablecoin, like if people get the Bitcoin allocation, I think it would be their option, depending on what currency their economy runs in, to convert that into a stablecoin that's tied to their currency's economy so that they just don't have the fluctuation and purchasing power that might come from just continuing to hold Bitcoin. So it's giving everyone energy and instead of giving energy directly, you give Bitcoin because in this situation, which is the second topic that we talked about because of the grid and there's a lot of ways to create energy, there isn't enough demand to be consuming this created energy. What we can do instead is to turn this additional energy into some other sources like mining Bitcoin, put it in batteries so we can use it in the future use cases. And in that sense, we are just balancing out what the regular supply and demand for energy would be. And in that sense, excess energy is now in Bitcoin. It's now created and stored as Bitcoin or batteries, whatever storage you want to use. Then instead of giving people money directly, you give them stored energy, Bitcoin or batteries or whatever, so that they can use this to do anything that they want. And if they don't want to speculate on that or they don't want to use energy directly, for example, your house is well lit, you don't need this additional battery to be powering your fridge or your TV, then you change it directly to fiat or stable coins and you can use it in any way you want. So it gives people this flexibility. Because if energy equals money, then stored energy in batteries or in Bitcoin is just saved money. And people can spend this saved money any way they want. That is exactly right. You know, this idea that give people energy as a universal basic income, that would quickly get shouted down as impractical if it were really just literally physically joules of energy or, you know, a battery pack or some quantum of actual energy. But if you then say, okay, you're right, that's impractical, but we'll give you stored energy. We'll give you energy in stored form. That's really what Bitcoin is. And so in that sense, and again, because just through harvesting of what's currently wasted, through resources that at the margin cost very little to build, you could really generate a lot of income for people who don't have enough or, again, on whatever basis you want to allocate it. I mean, obviously, universal means everybody gets it. But even if you take a step back from that and say, you know, how can we improve the renewable grid? How can we improve the lives of people who can't make ends meet? How can we facilitate more development of renewable resources so that, again, this factory owner who didn't make economic sense to locate in Nebraska, now they can locate there. I mean, just it's a win-win-win situation. And it may take time, but I think people are going to start to wake up to that. And you're going to start to see all these threads get tied together and these kind of integrated energy and social and economic policies. I mean, that's really the excitement for me, right? I mean, if I had to really boil it down to one overarching statement, it would be that you're going to see energy policy, economic policy, social policy all start to get tied together by the very concrete way in which Bitcoin ties energy to the economy and you know the way in which it facilitates social goals. 
I know you want to talk a little bit about the social benefits because right now we've talked a lot about the demand and the creation of energy, um, the creation yeah. of Bitcoin and how Bitcoin is helping all the other aspects of the economy. I think before we go, I don't know if we have time to talk about the social aspects, but if we shift the position of our topic a bit more, Nassim Taleb released a paper on pricing of Bitcoin and how he says Bitcoin is worth exactly zero. So we can talk about this in two ways. The first one is what if Bitcoin disappears tomorrow, what happens? Or we can talk about how the reason why in his analysis, Bitcoin is worth exactly zero is because there is no cash flow coming into Bitcoin to give it a value. Hence, using a discounted cash flow model when you're pricing securities, you can't price it that way. So given your experience in all these different securities pricing and trading, where does Bitcoin fit in this model? There are two ways that we can talk about this in the last 15 minutes. Which one do you want to talk about? Maybe we can get to one via the other. <laughs> okay. I haven't read his paper in detail. I did watch his video presentation on it. But I think that how does Bitcoin differ from a fiat currency in that framework? And you know, maybe his answer would be, and maybe he addresses it in the paper. And again, apologies that I haven't uh, I haven't read that in detail. But but maybe he addresses it as saying, you know, the taxing authority of the fiat issuer. You know, I, I don't know um, the tax revenues that come in. Maybe represents a cash flow of some kind. I mean, we can get into a whole modern monetary theory discussion about what tax really is and or taxation really is with respect to the creation and propagation of a fiat currency, which is really, in my understanding, just more of a construct that's used to help people understand the value of the currency, but it's not really a cash flow per se. So I guess I would really just say I don't understand how it would differ for any currency. That's my broad level statement. He doesn't define Bitcoin as currency, that's why. He defines yeah. Bitcoin as a security, and so it would just be the sum of cash flow that is yeah. accrued during the lifetime. Yeah. And again, I think that's a very, that's a debatable, um, to summarize, I found his argument pretty hollow. I don't really know. I mean, it seems like he was a big fan of Bitcoin, and then he turned on it, or maybe had a falling out with the author of this book, and it seems like it's as much personal as it is genuinely ideological on his part. So if let's say people start to believe that like Bitcoin is worth exactly zero, like all the miners just shut it down because they don't believe in this anymore and Bitcoin disappears tomorrow, what would happen? I mean, at some level it could. I actually think all of the stress that's been on the system because of China, you know, as far as the mining ecosystem goes, has been a really interesting test. And I kind of think the genie's out of the bottle as far as, and this again, I know we don't have a lot of time to discuss it, but I feel like as an underpinning, I mean, if we can just make one point here, I mean, we can spend a lot of time talking about the social benefits of Bitcoin and how it's going to improve real people's lives meaningfully because it's basically going to provide alternative, call them alternative banking services. It's already providing alternative banking services, remittances, and even for businesses, you know, uh, cross-border payments and all these things were just the gross inefficiency and the gross inequity in access of the legacy financial system is just being rapidly innovated around. And so the role of Bitcoin in balancing the grid, the role of Bitcoin in helping lower income people basically keep more of the income they're earning effectively, and even to be able to save and to invest and things that you know most of us take for granted. These are the things I think that will prevent Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies from dying. Now, now, certainly there are going to be plenty that as a broad category, right? I mean, every day there are projects that launch and fail or launch and they go for a while and they fail. There's going to be tons and tons of failure, tons of experimentation. But I view that as all healthy. I mean, when somebody has an idea, they try it, they test it, they put it out there. One in a thousand, one in 10,000 might actually stick over time. 
But to me, that's all in the nature of innovation. It's all very healthy. The fact that Bitcoin has survived this, what amounts to an asteroid strike from the mining side is, you know, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, right? So I think it's going to give people a lot more confidence going forward that this is something that's here to stay. And again, with all these use cases proliferating, it's just hard to see how you kill it at this point. I think that's a good summary of what we have discussed so far. And if we could summarize our discussion so far, it would be that the world's economy is really based on energy. The more we can create energy, the more the economy can grow. And here's the key. When we create additional energy and we store this energy for future use, because we find better use cases in the future or we find new demand for energy, then the economy can continuously grow even further. And since the growth of the economy is dependent on the growth of energy, then energy is very closely tied to money. Going a step back and look at the general economics, very basic economics of energy, you have the supply of energy and demand of energy. The way energy works is that you have this grid, which is like a book, where you have all the supply coming in, this kilojoules, this kilojoules, this kilojoules, and the demand coming in, I'm demanding this kilojoules, this kilojoules, this kilojoules. At the end, yeah. they always have to balance. So the total amount of kilojoules created has to be close to the total amount of kilojoules demanded. But now, now we find new ways to be capturing excess energy that's created. Because the way to create energy is going to be very expensive. The fixed cost is very expensive. But the marginal cost to create additional kilojoules of energy, it's a lot cheaper. It might even be zero dollars, like a really insignificant amount of money. Getting In this there, way, yep. we can tap into the fact that the additional kilojoules created is practically free then we can create excess kilojoules during this energy demand time and then store it somewhere. It can be stored in batteries or it can be stored in Bitcoin. Then Bitcoin can be traded and used in different ways because it is just stored energy. Going back to one of the things that we discussed is the universal basic income. And one way to equalize the way we look at the world, the way we look at the economy, the way we look at what the future of economy is going to be. Money, sure, money is a type of stored energy. Money itself that's given by the government is really loaned. It's credit money. It's debt to the future economy that we're creating. So it might not be the fairest way to be allocating universal basic income based on money because you're just owing someone something. But if we allocate universal basic income based on energy, and let's say that is in Bitcoin, then people can choose how they want to use this stored energy in any way, shape or form that could add value to them. And you're not owing anyone anything. So that creates a more equitable future moving forward. And in the future, we're going to see a lot more economic and social policies very tied to the way energy is created, energy is being used. The whole green wave of green investment and ESG funds is really pushing this narrative as well. I think that's an excellent summary. And, you know, to your last point, I mean, look at what COVID laid bare in terms of how you, know, you talk about tying social policy to energy policy. You look at how people of lower income almost inevitably breathe dirtier air because they are co-located. You know, lower cost housing tends to be located in areas with dirtier air. And so that really got exposed because of the, you know, they saw how many more people were dying from COVID who lived in these areas. And at first they didn't really understand why. And now they understand, oh, it's because their lungs were so compromised from living in this chronically dirty air for so long. And so now that that relationship is understood, and now you're thinking about, okay, well, what's really the cost of generating energy from this power plant? Well, it certainly has economic costs. It certainly has environmental costs. And now we better understand the social costs 
So now if you add the social cost to that equation, which historically, candidly, we've underappreciated or overlooked, however you want to say it, now what is the value of creating an incremental renewable resource to address that inequity? And what do you need to be able to make that renewable resource practical? You need ways of storing energy. What stores energy? Because I mean, it's like almost any way you slice it, you can anything, almost any issue that you look at that involves these factors, you can tie it back to the value of having a convenient and portable way to store energy that frankly, I mean, fossil energy, love it or hate it, one of its superpowers is that it's very conveniently storable and transportable. Bitcoin blows the doors off of that in terms of, you know, there's not even a comparison between how much more portable and storable Bitcoin is as a store of energy. Awesome. Thank you. That's something we're thinking about. It's a very different conversation to what people are saying and the way we talk about Bitcoin. I think that's a good way to start looking at Bitcoin in the timeline of what the future would be, what the future economy would be, and how Bitcoin can play a role in that future instead of just the constraints that we have today. Exactly. Exciting times for Bitcoin. Yeah, very much. And, you know, just as a parting comment, I know we're, uh, I know we're up on time, but I would just encourage the folks uh, listening here today to experiment with looking at all the news and all the developments that they're seeing and all the noise and everything else. Just try to look at it through this lens and see if things look differently and see if things seem less hazy or they seem or just it seems like there's a more stable or viable future for Bitcoin and cryptocurrency more broadly. Nice. I think that summarizes our conversation very, very well. Stop thinking about price speculation and think about the fundamental value that Bitcoin can bring to betterment our future that we are currently building. So thank you, David, once again. And thank you guys for listening. Yeah, and thanks, I'll Lisa. And thank you to everyone who joined today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for staying throughout this entire video. If you're interested to learn more and you want to join the community, do check out our Discord, check out our Academy, and you get to watch these videos for free as well without any ads and also grab the book that I've talked about earlier on. The book summarizes a lot of what we're trying to build, what we're trying to design and the different aspects that can be changed during the entire design process. We also just launched Econteric. Econteric is really economics plus esoteric because this space is so complicated and so difficult. What we want to do is to make it easier for anyone to come and learn and be part of this system. So in Econteric, we are breaking down the different analytics and different data to give you more insights to understand the robustness from a very fundamental level of the health of this ecosystem. So check out econteric.com and I'll see you there. Bye. Bye.